Thank you for listening to the Identity House Ministries podcast. We pray that today's teaching brings you in closer relationship with God the Father and empowers you to walk in your God-given identity. that we just had. Uh, you really met us, as you always do, as you always do, and so we're just so thankful that we get to come to you as, as a father and as, uh, as our friend. Um, and so we just, we love to, to worship you and lift your name to its rightful place. Dad, I pray that as we jump into your word tonight, that your Holy Spirit will be in the midst of us, in every house that's represented, represented tonight, and just leading us and guiding us into all truth. Because there is so much truth here in your word, and we are uh, we're going to dive into this letter to the church at Thyatira, and there's there's always stuff that's that's relevant uh, and that's prevalent to us here and here in our everyday life as as believers and as the church. So we just thank you that you are here with us. Uh, we dedicate this night to your purposes, and we just ask that uh, you be here with us. And so, Dad, we honor you. We give you all the glory and praise that you are due. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. All right, are you guys? Hope you guys are ready to jump into this. This is uh, number f- teaching number four in terms of the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. Uh, the past three weeks, we've gone over uh, Ephesus, um, Smyrna. <laughs> I'm trying to remember Ephesus, Smyrna, and then last week was Canon Mode did a teaching on Pergamos. So tonight we're going to jump into Thyatira, which is Something I'm very excited about. So I'm just going to go over before we jump into, into uh, just reading the letter and then diving into the individual pieces. I just want to remind everybody of the seven elements that kind of make up our outline, that make up our frame of reference for how we're studying these letters. So the seven elements are always there's an addressee who the letter is addressed to. Uh, there is always a title of Christ that's used. And we find that the title of Christ in each of the seven letters is something that's borrowed from Revelation chapter 1. So that's pretty interesting. Um, all of the letters will have a commendation. Uh, the next, so that's number three. Number four, there are the concerns that Christ, lay, Christ lays out for each of the churches. Uh, number five is an exhortation. He always exhorts them into some, some type of behavior or, or, or belief. Um, number six and seven, we're going to talk about those specifically, but it's the, the promise to the overcomer and the closing of the letter, which is always the same in everyone. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we just dive in and read this whole letter, keep your, keep your eyes open and your ears attuned to these seven elements so we can try to figure out exactly what's going on. So let's just dive in and read it. So we are in Revelation chapter 2. <coughs> This letter specifically starts in verse 18 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 29. So let's just read it. The word says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like fine brass, says these things. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and that your last works are more than first. But I have a few things against you. 
You permit that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Look, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will put her children to death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and the minds. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this teaching, who have not known what some call the depths of Satan, I will put on you no other burden, but hold firmly what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Like the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken in pieces." Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that is the entirety of the letter to the church of Thyatira. So we're just going to kind of jump in and dissect this according to our seven-point outline. And we're, we're going to figure out exactly what's going on. This is actually the longest of the seven letters. Um, there's a lot going on here. This one's like 11 verses, whereas some of them are like half that length almost. So there, there's a lot to, to dive in here. Um, so let's just take it at, at number one. So number one, the, the piece in our outline is always the addressee. Who is, who is the letter addressed to? And in this case, obviously, where this is, uh, it says in, in verse 18, Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write. So let's talk about Thyatira for a second. Um, because as it turns out, uh, the, the city itself in each one of these seven letters, the city itself, its characteristics, and often pretty much it's it speculated that the name of each of the cities has uh, some bearing on the content of the letter as a whole. So let's kind of talk about that. Um, specifically for Thyatira, I took uh, a couple excerpts from... Uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary and Smith's Bible Dictionary, as well as uh, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Um, so there's a lot of good resources about about this about this city and about this church. So these are some excerpts from from there, just to give you guys some background about what what the city of Thyatira was like. So Thyatira was a city of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Um, today its name is Akhisar, which means White Castle, so the city still stands today. Um, not White Castle like the, the burgers, <laughs> but White Castle for whatever reason. Uh, the city sat along a road between Pergamus and Sardis, so it sits between two of the other churches that letters were written to, interestingly enough. Um, you guys may remember in Acts chapter 16, there's a lady named Lydia who is referenced. Um, she is a sell, what she is what's referenced in the scripture. She's called a seller of purple, um, or rather cloth dyed with the color purple. She was from the city of Thyatira. Um, so the city was and still is famous for dyeing. And not dying as in death, but dying as in coloring, coloring fabric. Um, and it has a rep reputation for the manufacture of scarlet cloth. 
So it was, it was more specifically like red and purple dye that they're, that they're well known for. Uh, that may come into play later. Um, among the ruins of the city, there have been inscriptions found relating to the guild of dyers in the city in ancient times. So that's some, that's some stuff that was going on there. Um, this next piece is, is the thing that I took from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It says that Thyatira was specially noted for the trade guilds, which were probably more completely organized there than in any other ancient city. Every artisan belonged to a guild, and every guild, which was an incorporated organization, possessed property in its own name, made contracts for great constructions, and wielded a wide influence. It gets a lot more interesting. <laughs> the powerful among them was the guild of coppersmiths, and another was the guild of dyers. The guilds were closely connected with the Asiatic religion of the place, pagan feasts with with, with which immoral practices were associated were held, and therefore the nature of the guilds was such that they were opposed to Christianity. According to Acts 19.10, Paul may have preached there while he was living in Ephesus, but this is uncertain. Yet, Christianity did reach there at an early time. It was taught by many of the early church that no Christian might belong to one of the guilds. And thus, the greatest opposition to Christianity was presented. All right, so that, I know that was a long mouthful, but I just want to kind of lay that out for you guys. So, in Thyatira, it was known for uh, guilds of certain craftsmen, right? So, it, it's kind of like a, a, a professional organization where all of the craftsmen of a certain trade come together. They share secrets. They, you know, they own property together. They build up their business, what have you, Okay. Uh, there was guilds for every different trade. One of the main ones was coppersmiths, another one was of the dyers. Um, and the thing that's important to us about this and important to the context of this letter is that those guilds themselves, these organizations of different craftsmen, uh, engaged in pagan worship practices. Okay, They were uh, starkly, because of that, they were starkly opposed to Christianity. Okay, and I, I even read a couple places and, and heard in a couple teachings that um, each of the guilds could have potentially had like a, pay, a, a patron pagan deity that was over each individual guild. So kind of like the idea, this is the, the god of the, of the coppersmiths. This is a, the god of the craftsmen because they lived in a culture that was polytheist, right? They worshiped many gods. And so... It's kind of this, this idea where there was a God over each and every individual thing, and each and every guild had their own specific uh, God that they would worship and that they would pay tribute to. Um, so that, that's kind of what was going on there. And then you had this, this last uh, end piece that I read that uh, the early Christian church pretty much made it known that like if you're a part of one of these guilds, you are in opposition to Christ. Like You're, you're not living faithfully to him because you are, are willfully engaging in this thing that pays tribute to pagan gods. So that's, that's basically the context of what was going on with Thyatira at the time. Uh, it was a wealthy city because of all the different trades that were there, though it was a, a small city in comparison to a lot of the other places. Okay, so let's talk about the name Thyatira itself, because it turns out that the names of some of these towns are uh, pretty interesting and sometimes relevant to the letters themselves. So the name Thyatira was given to the city in 290 BC by King Seleucus 
Nicator, whoever that guy is, uh, when while he was at war, he found out that his wife had given birth to a daughter, and he named the city Thyatira, which is a word that's said to be derived from the Greek word for daughter, okay, uh, which in the Greek is Thugatera, so you can kind of you can kind of hear the, the resemblance there, how Thyatira is, is pulled from that word. Um, but that's not going to turn out to be the name that's interesting for us, at least our purposes. Uh, prior to being renamed Thyatira, the city had been known by several other names. Um, a couple of the names uh, that were given to the city in years prior to uh, this king renaming it included Pelopia and the most well-known one, Semiramis. So we're going to talk a lot about Semiramis. Yeah, the city, the city of Thyatira was actually named Semiramis, which is pretty crazy if any of you guys know about uh, Semiramis. We're going to talk a little bit about her because she is actually a character that is well known uh, in history. So that's, that's going to be interesting for us. So speaking of Semiramis, let's just, let's just go straight and talk about that because that, that's, that's where we are in, in, in our study. So I would encourage all of you guys... And actually, let me make let me make kind of like a, a wide, broad statement about this. Um, I've actually so let, let's kind of do an aside for a second. I've actually been kind of convicted recently about getting overly excited about things that I find in Scripture and uh, sharing them with people without uh, the proper qualification of like I don't know this to be fact, <laughs> right? And so I love to share things that I find and things that I've, you know, researched and things that, you know, I've, I've heard in teachings and stuff. I'm like, wow, listen to this, listen to what I heard. Um, there's a lot of different opinions and different ideas about ancient history because, I mean, we can't exactly verify all of it to <laughs> the extent that would make, you know, us comfortable to be like, this is fact. All we have is evidence to support certain things. And so... I just want to tell you guys, you know, with that being said, like, I am sorry if I have ever, like, well, I know I've done this. I am sorry for, like, sharing things at, just because I am excited about them and excited about the ideas and feel as though, wow, this really means something when it's not necessarily something that we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. So, with that said, I want you guys to do your own research and be convinced in your own minds about all of this. I, sh I shouldn't even be up here teaching if I don't encourage that. Be, be Bereans and search stuff out so that you can be convinced in your own mind of what is true, and God will lead you and guide you into all truth. Like it, All of this is about your personal relationship with him and what you believe based on where he leads you and based on what you can find uh, in scripture and in the historical context around it. So, uh, I mean, I, I even caught myself like doing something like, like I just described on Wednesday at Robo. Like, you know, I, I get excited about stuff. It's like, no, guess what this is? Like, the word says this. And like, scholars believe that blah, 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 you know? And so, be convinced in your own mind, do your own study. And so, with that said, that's just a little bit of an aside, but I would encourage all of you guys to do a personal study of this lady, Semiramis. She, mm -hmm. was, she, was, she was believed to be a person that we're going we're gonna to talk about and we're going to discuss. So, uh, do your own study. Figure out what you believe, because there's a lot of conflicting accounts. And so, mm -hmm. I'm just going to share some things that historians believe 
may or may not be true about her. So she is a woman. So historians believe, some historians believe, Semiramis to be the wife of Nimrod, who was the first world dictator, as described in Genesis 10. Remember Nimrod, the guy who built the Tower of Babel, says he became a great and mighty man among uh, in the earth. And so a lot of uh, historians believe Nimrod to be essentially the first world dictator. They believe Semiramis to have potentially been his wife. Um, so there are many legends surrounding Semiramis. Um, a lot of these legends call her like the first priestess of the pagan religion known as the Babylonian Mysteries. So that's another thing that I would really encourage you guys to study and look into, the Babylonian Mysteries. You can go down many, many long rabbit trails <laughs> about that, but it gets very interesting. And it is very relevant to what we're talking about tonight in terms of, in terms of this letter. So uh, historians, or, historians believe or have uncovered legends about Semiramis saying that she was the mother of Tammuz, uh, who she fathered by... Well, we're not going to get into it, but it's, it's a messed up family story. Yeah. Let's just call it that. <laughs> um, so, with all that being said, all you need to know is that Nimrod, Semiramis, and her son Tammuz all became worshipped as gods under the Babylonian Mysteries. So all three of them were worshipped as gods. What? They created it. Right, right. Yeah, they created it. That This family essentially created this religion. Semiramis was supposedly the high priestess of this religion, and they created this thing surrounding them as a family, um, and all three of them were worshipped as gods, which is really, really fascinating and also weird. Um, <laughs> so it's speculated by some that all pagan religions that you see in the world today are in some way, shape, or form derivative of uh, the Babylonian mysteries, in some way, shape, or form. And we're going to kind of touch on that a little bit. Uh, so any, specifically any religion that has to do with polytheism, there's, you will always see like a male sun god, a female moon goddess, like the mother and child type of motif that's carried out throughout all of these different religions and pagan cult ideas, stuff like that. I mean, you can even see it in... Um, uh, mythology, like Greek and Roman mythology, there's all kinds of stuff about the families that were made up of these gods and demigods and stuff, and how, you know, there were father and son, and the son kills the father, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Go research it on your own, it gets really crazy. <laughs> it gets really crazy, but a lot of, a lot of biblical scholars, a lot of historians do believe that um, a lot of motifs carried through in these Various pagan religions are just derivative of what was found in that original Babylonian mystery that occurred there at the time of the Tower of Babel. And so um, there is one YouTube series that I would highly recommend you guys go listen to and watch. It's by this guy named Mark Fairley. Um, he has a YouTube channel called The Fuel Project. Um, he has a series called Know Your Enemy, and it just traces... Uh, all of Satan's workings throughout all of history, essentially, so that we can know what his tactics are and stuff. And he goes really deep into Babylonian mysteries. He talks about Semiramis for several videos. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but like I said, this stuff is, it's a lot of speculation because this is thousands and thousands of years old. So all we know is the, is the, the written history that we have and the oral traditions that were carried along. So in any case, <laughs> with all that being said, in any case, 
What we do know to be fact is that Semiramis, this person of Semiramis, she became associated with what we know as uh, the goddesses Ishtar, Astareth, Asherah, Astarte, uh, among many others. All of those names that I just listed are just various names for the same goddess that uh, was carried through different cultures and stuff. So, uh, uh, let's see, like Ishtar was like ancient Sumerian culture, Astarith and Asherah, those were both like ancient Canaanite culture, Astarte was like the Hellenistic culture. Um, there's even some like loose comparisons between Semiramis and Isis, what you know from Egypt, like the mother of Horus, that type of stuff. And so whoever, whoever this Semiramis lady person was, whether she was an actual real living person or not, she was widely known to be associated with all of these goddesses. Or, well, it's the same goddess that just goes by different names, okay? And so Semiramis was associated with all of them, that she was basically the one that all of these different goddesses came from. And each and every one of these, we're going to find this to be really interesting as we go, were referred to as the Queen of Heaven, that's how we know that they're all essentially essentially the same goddess that's just taken on different names in different cultures. They worshipped, uh, in, in these different ancient cultures, they worshipped Ishtar, Astareth, Asherah, Astarte, the Egyptian Isis. All of these goddesses were referred to as the Queen of Heaven. So it's the same person, just taken on different names. Um, and also, in many cases, uh, these goddesses were referred to as Mother of God, Okay, which is going to be really interesting. Semiramis was called the mother of God because she gave birth to Tamut, who was essentially worshipped as a god and was lifted up as the reincarnation of Nimrod. It gets into all kinds of crazy stuff. She like said it was an immaculate conception. Yeah, she said it was an immaculate conception and all kinds of stuff. So go research this this stuff and you'll find a lot of different conflicting accounts. But we do know that Semiramis is associated with these ideas of queen of heaven and mother of God. And these different goddesses were worshipped as such. Okay, so it also should be noted that in ancient Sumerian and Canaanite cultures, the worship of these female deities very often included a variety of sexual rituals. Um, so there are several examples that you can find of this throughout the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> you'll find several references, like in 1 Kings, Deuteronomy, all over the place, um, of Asherah poles. Asherah was one of these goddesses that we re referenced. Um, Astral poles are basically just big, tall, like, structures that were made to look phallic, <laughs> essentially. Nice. Um, really tall phallic symbols. We actually have one in our nation's capital. The Washington yeah. Monument is an Astral pole, believe it or not. Um, I'm not going to go down that road because this is some really crazy like, conspiracy stuff, but that's what one looks like. If you're wondering what an Astral pole looks like, it looks like the Washington Monument. God really hated them. <laughs> I can tell you that much. You can see that all throughout <laughs> Scripture. Um, in addition to the Asherah poles, uh, these female deities were worshipped uh, through these various sexual rites and rituals in what were called groves, which were atops of mountains in the midst of trees. And uh, that's pretty. That's a very pervasive idea that these these queen of heaven. Uh, fertility goddess deities were worshipped atop of mountains in the midst of groves of trees. And all of the trees in these groves were actually carved 
again, as more phallic symbols. So it, there is really, really pervasive sexual overtones to the whole thing. Um, and that's going to be really uh, important as we keep going through through this letter. So <clears throat> let's move on. That's, so that's a little bit about Thyatira, the context. The name at one time was Semiramis, and there are a lot of implications of it being named after her. So that, that's kind of what you need to know from that. So let's move on to the title of Christ. This is number two in our outline. So <clears throat> um, it says in verse 18, Unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. And so like I said at the beginning, this every title of Christ that's used in one of these seven letters always points back to something in Revelation chapter 1. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and look in like verses 12 through 15, you will see the passage that says, uh, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as, as white as snow. Excuse me. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. His voice was as the sound of many waters. So that's exactly the passage where this title of Christ in the letter to Thyatira was pulled from. Um, so what is this title that Jesus chooses to use of himself? What does it insinuate? Why does he choose this exact title? So um, it's really interesting. The first part of it is, these things saith the Son of God. Alright? So something that's interesting about that, this is the only time in the entire book of Revelation that the term Son of God is used. Only time. Really, really interesting. Um, some biblical scholars believe that Jesus used this term Son of God on purpose in order to contrast it with the idea of the Queen of Heaven. So Son of God, Queen of Heaven, two opposing ideas. Yeah. Okay? So, uh, let's see. So now let's talk about, so that's the Son of God piece. The second piece of this title of Christ is, Who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. <clears throat> so we automatically get a clue if we, if we, do, if we do our little bit of like grammar uh, inspection here. We see the word like. So his eyes are like unto a flame of fire. Okay? Let's not make the mistake of saying Jesus' eyes are flames of fire because they're not. This is a simile. It's saying they are like flames of fire. Okay, that's, that's really important. Um, and, it, and again, it says his feet are like fine brass. So when John is seeing this vision of Christ, he's not actually seeing someone with actual flames as eyes and actual brass feet. He's saying that's what they are like. These are descriptors because he's using simile. Um, so let's talk about the fire, these fire eyes that Jesus has in this vision that John's having. So fire is used throughout the scripture as a symbol of judgment. Uh, if you guys actually want to turn right quick, I'm just going to give you guys an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Uh, it says, Each one's work will be revealed, for the day will, be, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If anyone's work which he has built on the foundation endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, still going through the fire. So fire throughout scripture, that's just one example of many that you can find, um, is used as this, uh, this symbol or this type of judgment. Okay, Jesus' eyes of fire are the eyes of judgment. Okay, so, you know, that passage in 1 Corinthians is talking about 
on, in that last day, you know, when, when we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to inspect the work of our lives and the works that, that don't hold up, that aren't good and that aren't righteous will be burned away in the fire. Okay, really interesting idea. Um, similarly, uh, <clears throat> so it also says his feet are like fine brass. So brass is also used throughout the scripture as a symbol of fire and judgment as well. So uh, you can look back at the, the account of uh, the Israelites in the wilderness when they were all bitten by the snakes. God tells Moses to, uh, to forge a brazen, fiery serpent made out of brass, and he holds it up for everyone to see. Um, so it's, there's this idea that like brass is the metal that stands through the fire. Okay, So it, it's, again, this kind of idea of judgment. Um, so what Jesus is saying here by using this title, presumably, is that he is the one to whom the right to judgment is committed. So Jesus is the one that has the right to judge. Okay? And he is the only one that can stand through the fire. Right? Through the fires of judgment. He's the only one that can step into the fire without anything being burned away. And so because of that, he has the right to judge. He has the right to look upon, you know, the people in this church whom he is writing to with the eyes of judgment and to see their works and to see where they are going wrong and to execute judgment on the behalf of Father God. Something like that. <laughs> um, so we will find out why this judgment is necessary when we get to the concerns section. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the idea of the title of Christ that's being used here. And as we go, you can kind of, you can kind of uh, remember back to this title and see, okay, I can see why the judgment is necessary in this situation. So let's move on to the commendation. Let's get back to, to where I'm at. Um, so the commendation. <clears throat> Jesus says in, where is this? This is verse, this is verse 19. <clears throat> It says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So he says works there twice, which is interesting. He says, and the last to be more than the first. So <clears throat> Jesus says, I know thy works. This is a statement that Jesus has made to all four of the churches that we've covered so far. To everyone, he said, I know thy works. So in my mind, he's affirming to each one of these churches, to every individual in these churches, that he sees us and he knows what's going on in our lives. We can't pretend that he's just up in the sky not paying attention and that he's, you know, uh, absent from our life. That's not the case. He's here in our midst. In chapter 1, it says he walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks, which are the churches. He is here in the midst of our church. It also says he holds the angels of the churches in his hand, right? He is eminently involved in what's going on in our lives and in the lives of these churches, okay? So we can't say that he's not, because everyone, every time he says, I know thy works. Um, and I just put this little note in here. This can either be an encouragement or a bit of a reality check, depending on where our hearts are at and what we've been up to. So if we've been doing good, Jesus sees it. He sees your victory. He sees your perseverance. He sees, you know, the love and the service and, and all the hard work that you're putting in. That's an encouragement because he will reward you for it. Uh, he also sees all of the very concerning stuff. Uh, that should be a reality check, right? 
So, uh, the church at Thyatira was commended for uh, their works and deeds in a similar fashion to the church at Ephesus. They were doing a lot of good stuff for the kingdom. He was very proud of what they were up to in terms of their activity. We also have them being commended for charity, which can also be translated as love, uh, service, faith, and patience. We've got a couple, we've got a few fruits of the spirit there. Yeah. So they're they're living out like spirit-filled life in some way. They're exemplifying Christ in a lot of ways based on how they're living. That's a great thing. That is a great thing. He had definite things to commend them for. Um, and the one piece that's interesting about this commendation is we see the the term, you know, I know thy works. He used the words works twice. And then he says, and the last to be more than the first. And so what that means is their works, their good deeds were growing in magnitude, right? They weren't just like sitting still and doing the same thing over and over again. No, they were expanding on what they were doing for, for Christ. Their works were growing in their order of magnitude. That's a great thing. This is a, this is a really good commendation. Um, I think a lot of us would be, would be glad to hear this from the Lord. Like, I know what you've been doing. I see what you continue to do, and I see that what you're doing continues to grow in terms of, in terms of you know, the goodness that's there. You guys are improving. That's, that's awesome. There's so much good here. So they get a good commendation. Um, unlike the church of uh, Sardis that we're going to hear next week, I just didn't have anything good to say about them. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's not good. Um, so let's move on to the concerns. This is where we get real deep into some of the stuff that's going on. <clears throat> so Jesus' concerns... Starting in verse 20. It says, Notwithstanding, it's not a good word, you've done all this good stuff, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Holy smokes, what is going on there? Um, there is a lot going on. The one thing that sticks out to probably a lot of you in this verse is the reference to Jezebel. So before we talk about Jezebel, we need to talk about a couple things to prepare us for it. Um, the one thing that is really uh, important to tease out here is this word fornication. Okay, So what, what's this thing that Jezebel is doing? She's one, calling herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing Christ's servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So what does this word fornication mean? Um, I looked it up in the Strong's Dictionary, or Strong's Concordance, excuse me, and this word fornication is a very common word that's used throughout Scripture. It's the word porneia in the Greek, and the actual definition is harlotry, including adultery and incest, or figuratively, idolatry or fornication. So that's really interesting that in this very, uh, in this word that has a very sexual context in a lot of ways, there is this, uh, there is this um, other idea that's associated with it of idolatry. And we're going to kind of tease that out a little bit. This word comes from a root word, uh, oh boy, pornuo. That word means to act the harlot, i.e., 
or literally to indulge in unlawful lust of either sex or to figuratively practice idolatry, commit fornication. So it's really interesting. Fornication and adultery are used throughout Scripture as a metaphor for being drawn away to worship false gods, okay, throughout Scripture. There's even an entire book of the Old Testament dedicated to this idea. It's the book of Hosea. The entire book of Hosea is this kind of uh, this storyline of, I mean, you, you should definitely go read it for yourself. God tells the prophet Hosea to basically take a prostitute and marry her, and she continues to cheat on him, and he continues to take her back. And God is like, this, this, is, what, uh, this is what my relationship with Israel has been, <laughs> right? My, my, my wife Israel is, is this adulterous, harlotous bride that I have taken, and she continues to whore herself out and to commit adultery against me. Like, uh, and the reason that God has God used that as a as a metaphor is sexual immorality is used, like I said, throughout the scripture to uh, convey the idea of worshiping false gods and idolatry. And that's everything that Israel was into at the time that book was written. I mean, Israel was following after all of the false gods of the Canaanites. And that was just a continual theme throughout a lot of the the books of the prophets and the the historical books um, in the Old Testament. So we need to get it into our minds that uh, in this passage, the word fornication probably most directly based on the context has a meaning uh, related to the worship of false gods because that actually is one of the definitions of the word uh, idolatry okay but the sexual aspect of the word is also probably very relevant okay just because uh, the word fornication can mean idolatry and that's likely the the context that it's being used here the sexual aspect of the word is relevant, which would lend to a potential double meaning of the word. So you've got the sexual aspect and you've got the idolatry aspect. Because as you will remember, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, in ancient cultures, idolatry and the worship of pagan and pagan gods and goddesses also included a variety of sexual rites and rituals. Okay? So these two things go hand in hand. And so we get from the context because... Jezebel is, is seducing people in the church to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. There's this idea here that there is both um, worship of false gods and idolatry going on hand in hand with rampant sexual immorality. In that the sexual immorality itself was the means by which they were worshiping these false gods, if that makes sense. It's kind of hard to explain, but that, that's kind of that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. So, so I have this note. So, fornication in this context could potentially mean engaging in idol worship through the practices of pagan sexual rituals. Got it. Got it. Good. <clears throat> okay. So, let's talk about this lady Jezebel now. Um, this lady. This lady. This lady. It literally says. Uh, Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. So that's what I'm calling her. That woman Jezebel. <laughs> so Such a let's, harsh. Yeah, let's read the verse again. Let's read the verse again. 
Uh, verse 20 says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So who is this woman Jezebel that's doing all these things? She calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing Christians to worship false idols and to do sexually explicit things in that name. So firstly, I think we have to take the Bible at its word, okay? So the local context definitely suggests that there was an actual woman in Thyatira that called herself a prophetess and actually was doing these things. I 100% believe that. That's what it says. <laughs> That's what it says. Um, however, she was probably not actually named Jezebel. Uh, Jesus was likely referring to the character in the Old Testament, Jezebel, in order to give them an idea of her characteristics and to describe her. Okay, that, that's what the large majority of scholars believe, and I tend to, I tend to agree. Um, so, we need to talk about some historical context about this, because there is some evidence that this was the case in the city of Thyatira. So, I pulled this big, long quote. Um, where did I pull this quote from? Uh, oh, I pulled this quote from uh, Smith's Bible Dictionary. So, this is long, but bear with me. So it says, the principal deity of the city of Thyatira was Apollo, but there was another superstition of an extremely curious nature, which seems to have been brought there by some of the corrupted Jews of the dispersed tribes. A fane stood outside the walls dedicated to Sambatha, the name of a sibyl, a sibyl is essentially an oracle, like a, I got the definition of sibyl here. A woman in ancient times supposed to utter, utter the oracles and prophecies of a god. So there was an oracle that this, uh, that this altar was dedicated to, who she was sometimes referred to as a Chaldean, sometimes she was referred to as being Jewish, sometimes Persian. Um, but this altar was in the midst of an enclosure designated as the Chaldean's court. Okay, this seems to lend an illustration to the obscure passage in Revelation 2, 20 through 21, which are the concerns that we are reading. Um, some people interpret this passage of the wife of the bishop of Thyatira, but in any case, now there is evidence to show that in Thyatira there was a great amalgamation of different races. If the oracle Sambatha was in reality a Jewess, lending her aid to the amalgamation of different religions and not discountenanced by the authorities of the Judeo-Christian church at Thyatira, both the censure and its qualification become easy of explanation. I know that's super hard to understand, so let me, <laughs> let me tease it out for you guys because I had to read this several times to get the gist of it. So, there is historical evidence in the city of Thyatira um, to basically support this idea that outside the city walls there was an altar built in this thing called the Court of the Chaldeans. And that there was this lady who was known as an oracle or a prophetess um, that was this altar was dedicated to. And um, there's this idea that Thyatira was a place of a lot of different races of people mixing together, bringing a lot of different religions together. And that this lady named Sambatha was uh, a person that um, contributed to like 
all of these different religions coming together uh, to do like different pagan rituals and like you know all kinds of stuff to bring these pagan re religions together like it defines to Christianity. What's up? You have a question? Uh, I don't have a question or a comment. Okay, comment. Uh, yeah, it should also be noted that uh, kind of going back, Semiramis is often um, attributed as the person to have like begun the building of the Tower of Babel. Yes. Which would also support the multi like pantheon and yes. like racial theories. Yes. Yeah. That is a great yep, that's a great a great thing. Like like we said, go research Samaritans. You'll find a lot of cool stuff. We don't have time to talk about all that. <laughs> <laughs> so this idea of the pagan religions all coming together under the directive of this oracle that lived outside the city walls of Thyatira. Um, so, this Sibyl or prophetess or oracle, if this historical account is true, and it is referencing what we find in Jesus' concerns in Revelation 2, chapter 20, this potential prophet, prophetess was likely a member of the, of the Christian church in Thyatira. And that she was, like, like the letter says, seducing and teaching Christians to basically follow her in their idolatry, in their worship of these pagan and pagan gods. Um, and that is exactly what Jesus had against them. It's, it's the fact that they allowed this to go on in their church. They tolerated it. They tolerated this lady coming in and pulling people away and seducing them into uh, idol worship and into occult sex practices. Okay, Jesus was not happy about this. So that's that's kind of what's what's going on there. Um, so that's like the local context of what of what this is probably talking about, right? There's this prophetess in the church that's seducing Christians to, to go do these pagan sex rituals and to worship false gods. Um, but the reason that Jesus probably refers to her as Jezebel is because of the account of the actual Old Testament character Jezebel. Um, because everybody in the Christian church would know, if they knew their Bible, they would know exactly what Jezebel was all about, right? They would know the characteristics of a Jezebel. And so uh, there are a few different <clears throat> accounts of Jezebel that I just want to read to you guys from 1 Kings chapter 16 and chapter 21. Um, Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbal who was the witch king of Sidon, and she married Ahab, the king of Israel, in kind of a, uh, a trade deal type, I don't know, it was all about commerce, it was all like a mutual beneficial marriage, one of those, you know, power things that you always hear about in terms of kings marrying princesses and whatnot. So, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 16, we've got this passage, starting in verse 29. It says, and in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. 
And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Ahab was not a good dude <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, so we talked about the groves before. These areas atop mountains surrounded by trees that were carved into phallic symbols that uh, were the locations which all of these pagan sex practices were, were done in worship of Asherah and Astareth and stuff. Ahab made one of these places. This is a king of Israel, the guy that's supposed to be following Yahweh, the God of, a of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a grove. He worshipped Baal. Like, he's following after all of these pagan gods of, of the ancient uh, Canaanites. So, not a good dude. Um, and so, there's this other passage in 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, verses 25-26. It says, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. This is the important part. Whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So this passage gives us the reason why Ahab fell into idol worship and into worshiping false gods and into these pagan practices of, of groves and building altars to Baal and all this stuff. It's because Jezebel stirred him up into it. She convinced him. She was, she was the pagan lady from a pagan nation that married into uh, the kingly line of Israel. And she seduced and taught Ahab to do all of this stuff. Okay, so we find these really, really close connections to what we're reading in the letter of Thyatira. This is a lady, Jezebel, the actual person that's named, that's teaching and seducing someone who's supposed to be the servant of God to commit fornication, idol worship, um, and to follow pagan deities and do pagan you know, sex ritual practices and stuff. So that's who we're talking about. Um, that's, that's the person that Jesus is referencing uh, in this letter, most likely. So, uh, I would highly encourage you guys to read um, the accounts of Elijah and the prophets of Baal uh, in 1 Kings 18, and also the account of the field of Naboth and Jezebel's eventual death uh, in 1 Kings 21. Crazy stories. Some of the craziest stories in all of the Bible. Like, absolutely crazy. Uh, long story short, uh, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and burns up a sacrifice on the altar, uh, basically in front of four, oh, 850 prophets of Baal who could not do that exact thing when calling upon Baal. Like, and then when they failed, like he had them all chased down and killed. Like Crazy, crazy stories. And then Jezebel dies by being thrown out of a window and then trampled by horses and chariots. Like Crazy stories. Really wild. Um, so you will get an idea reading that what Jezebel is all about. And so ever since ever since people have been reading these these accounts of Jezebel and Ahab um, in the Old Testament, you if you are a Christian and you believe this stuff, you know what's being referred to when somebody says Jezebel, right? It's a manipulative female character that is uh, using seduction and again manipulation to. Uh, take people who are in positions of authority 
and to pull them pull them out and pull them away from the worship of God and to worship, you know, whether it be false gods or pagan deities or just away from the worship of God, whatever it may be, like that's what a Jezebel is and that's what Jesus was referring to. Um, so again, do some research on Jezebel, you'll find some crazy stuff. Uh, and just as a little bit of an aside, you guys will probably hear people in more charismatic circles refer to the spirit of Jezebel a lot. Um, they're basically just referring to uh, referring to that when they see someone exhibiting these types of behaviors, and they will say, "Oh, that's that's a spirit of Jezebel." That's probably not actually what the spirit would be named but that's what's what it's identified as based on the behaviors that it induces if that makes sense so we can talk more about that if you guys have questions but i gotta move on we gotta roll so let's continue with the concerns uh revelation 2 22 through 23 says uh referring to jezebel referring to this lady <clears throat> says i gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not behold i will cast her into a bed and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. <clears throat> so, uh, really interesting about this, this piece in verses 22 through 23. Uh, this is one of three occurrences in the entire Bible of the phrase great tribulation okay there's only three times in the entire scripture that the term great tribulation is used and this is one of them uh, the other two instances are in matthew chapter 24 verse 21 and revelation chapter 7 verse 14 both of those instances are clearly referring to the great tribulation period the three and a half years leading up to the triumphant return of christ to set up his millennial reign so when people talk about the, the Great Tribulation, uh, those two passages are definitely referring to it, which leads many scholars to believe that this reference to Great Tribulation is talking about the same thing. We're talking about that three-and-a-half-year period, and we're going to get into more of that as we move forward in our study of Revelation. I'm sure you guys have some general ideas about what that's about and probably even more questions about what that's about. But we're just going to kind of leave that there. Um, so Jesus seems to be saying that one of the consequences of not repenting for this idolatry that we're talking about is that they will enter into the great tribulation. Um, it also could be the case that this is just a one-off use of that phrase that is not actually referring to the tribulation period, but is just, you know, you will enter into a great time of, of suffering, and I'll, I'll put you there, not necessarily referencing... Uh, the Great Tribulation, but I tend to think he is talking about the actual Great Tribulation period. So, with that said, this potentially does speak to the prophetic nature of the letter. Um, you guys are aware that throughout the course of, of talking about and going through these studies of uh, the letters to the seven churches that we have four levels of application. We've got the local and current level of application. We've got the current or the personal level of application. These letters are applicable to me personally. They were applicable to the people in that church at that time. That's the local and current. There's the uh, application level that is church-wide. Like this letter is applicable to the church as a whole. And then there's this potential idea that these letters have a prophetic application. 
And so this, this kind of would speak to that if this is a reference, reference to the actual great tribulation leading up to the millennial reign of Christ. Because all those who were in Thyatira at the time that this was written are long dead, right? <laughs> Without the tribulation ever having come. Um, so if that's the case, there's got to be some people in a church that is uh, described by, by the letter of Thyatira that are around when the tribulation comes to pass. Okay? I hope all this is making sense. So we will see, uh, one thing that's interesting, we will see an exact opposite statement of this. So this statement that says... Uh, then that commit adultery with her, I will cast them into a great tri into great tribulation, uh, except they repent of their deeds. There's an exact opposite statement of, than this that we will see in the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Jesus promises to keep them from the time of the great tribulation. So we have this contrast between the two these two churches that we'll probably get more when we talk about the letter of Philadelphia. Um, but Jesus is saying if you to one church in Thyatira, if you don't repent, I'll cast you into great tribulation. In Philadelphia, he says, keep doing what you're doing, and I will keep you from the time of great tribulation. That's crazy. There's some really, uh, really interesting end times uh, ramifications of, the, of those statements. Um, if, if it's talking about what, what a lot of people think it's talking about. So let's move on to point number five in our outline, the exhortation. I hope I'm not going too fast for you guys. I know this is a ton of information. But this is really just to whet your appetites so that you can go study this for yourself. Okay, so the exhortation we're going to find in uh, verses 24 through 25. It says, But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden." But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. So, uh, the one thing that probably sticks out to everybody in that passage, not only because I said it really emphatically, uh, but because it does stick out, <laughs> is that term, the depths of Satan. Um, so, what is that all about? Uh, I think based on the context of this letter... Uh, this this idea of the depths of Satan clearly refers to these ongoing practices of idolatry that we've been talking about. Um, and this is what I'm about to say is like a really heavy statement, but I think it's it's I think it's accurate that to engage in the pagan religious practices and idol worship was to be in relationship with Satan in the same way that we can be in relationship with God. Yeah, that's what it's about. Right. Think about it. How do, how, do, how do we be in relationship with God? We worship Him. We worship Him. We be obedient. We, we connect with Him. We pray to Him. Like, we read His Word. Well, what were these people probably doing in all of their, all of their pagan rites and rituals and, and, you know, this fornication that's described, this idolatry? They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping idols that were inspired by Satan. Okay, they are they're doing all of the stuff that we're supposed to be doing with God, with with and for these pagan deities that originated in the mind of Satan and in many ways directly represent Satan. And so that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. To know the depths of Satan is to be in relationship with him. 
That is not a place any of us want to be at all. No, thank you. At all. Okay, so, but Jesus is talking about, in this exhortation, those who have not gone to that point, those who have not experienced the depths of Satan, uh, he, he basically says to those people who have not experienced the depths of Satan, just keep doing what you're doing until I return. Um, this part is really interesting. He says, uh, I will put on you none other burden, but that which ye already have, hold fast till I come. This is really interesting because this is an explicit reference to Christ's second coming. Hold fast till I come. Keep doing what you're doing till I come back. Okay? Um, <clears throat> what's interesting about this is none of the first three letters that we went through, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, none of those had explicit references to Christ's second coming. None of them said anything about it. Mm. However, starting with Thyatira, moving on to Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all four of those letters do have an explicit reference to the second coming of Christ. Why is that? I want you guys to think about that because there could be some, some very, very interesting ramifications of, of that switch. Like, why is there a switch? The first few letters say nothing about Christ's second coming. The last four do. Very interesting. So that's pretty much it for the exhortation. Um, now let's go to point six, which uh, in this outline is the promise to the overcomer. So uh, in verse 26... It says, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. So, as we talked about, at least as I talked about in the letter to Ephesus when I did that teaching, this him that overcometh, to he that overcometh, uh, this appears to refer to those that heed Christ's message. <laughs> if you listen to the message of the letter and you obey, you are counted as overcoming. Um, so this promise is re reserved for those who remain obedient to Christ. Um, it's interesting, we talked about this before in the Ephesus teaching, all of the promises to the overcomer in the seven letters, all of them are promises related to our place in eternity. They don't have anything to do with us right now, they have to do with where are we going to be, what's going to be our positioning, what's going to be our circumstances in eternity, after Christ's second coming, after he sets up his kingdom. Um, so and in this case, in this case, uh, the overcomer is essentially promised to be given a place of authority in Christ's government, in the kingdom that he sets up. If you overcome in the manner that he's talking about, you will be given a place of authority. And, you know... The, that passage that you'll read in Scripture, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. That's All authority is committed to Jesus. And essentially, when he sets up his government, he's going to distribute that authority to those that have been obedient to the faithful, to his followers, when he sets up his government in his second coming. We don't talk nearly enough about the, what the world's going to look like after Christ returns. Like, that is an imminent reality that is way bigger and way more important than what we experience right here today. We don't talk nearly enough about it. <clears throat> okay, and then, so the last part of this uh, promise to the overcomer says, I will give him the morning star. 
So I looked this up in my cross-references. The morning star only occurs, or the phrase, excuse me, the phrase the morning star only occurs one other place. In only occurs one other place in scripture. In Isaiah 14. Well, I, well in my, I said it only occurs one other place in the book of Revelation. Mm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I forgive you, Matt. Sorry. That's it in my notes. It also occurs in the chiropractic Oh, creepy. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Anyways, in Revelation, so... for a specific reason. So, why? I mean, why would Jesus use that term, the morning star? It could be the case that he's using it in contrast to the sun and the moon, which were worshipped in pagan religions as the male sun god and the female moon goddess. The queen of heaven was often represented by the moon uh, in a lot of these pagan religions. So that could be the reason that he uses the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Basically, the morning star is referring to Jesus. So that's really interesting. All right, so let's go to the closing. Um, this is number seven in our outline. Um, as always, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This means everyone. Do you have an ear? Yes, you do, every one of you. Yeah, I have <laughs> yes, you two. Do. You have two. So, <clears throat> you're supposed to hear this. You're supposed to pay attention. This message is for you. Um, that is that first level of application, or the second level of application, excuse me. This letter is relevant to you. You are supposed to hear it because you have an ear. If you're willing to listen, this is for you. Um, it's applicable to your life. Uh, this piece also says to the churches. So uh, this has church-wide application. This letter is relevant to every church you've ever been a part of or ever will be a part of. Um, some percentage of your church is represented by the church of Thyatira in some way, shape, or form. Uh, this exact statement is found in all seven letters, which it's, it's all there. So now I, I kind of want to point out something interesting again. So remember we were talking about how uh, the first three letters have no reference, no explicit reference to Christ's second coming. The last four, all of them do. So this is really interesting. The first, uh, the first three letters we have... He that hath an ear, what the Spirit says to the churches, followed by the promise of the overcomer. So the promise of the overcomer was like a postscript in all three of the first letters. Mm. The last four, it's flipped. The promise of the overcomer occurs prior to the closing. He that hath an ear, let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why would that be? (laughs) I mean, I personally believe that everything that's in Scripture is there for a reason. Like, it's not done arbitrarily. There is a reason for it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I think... So, let's, let's talk about it. So, the potential reason for these two changes in the letters, at this point, the, from going from Pergamos to Thyatira, there's, there's these two changes. Explicit references to Christ's second coming and the flipping of a postscript of the promise of the overcomer to it being in the body of the letter. 
this is a controversial viewpoint, a very controversial viewpoint, but I'm going to share it because I think it's really interesting in terms of the prophetic application of these letters is that, you know, we've, we've talked about in the past in the, in every one of our letters, how, uh, the different churches, it's proposed that they represent different eras of church history, right? Um, that if you look at church history, starting with Pentecost, you have first uh, a time period that's characterized by the apostolic church of actually building the church through apostleship, through apostles going out and building things. That period of church history is followed by a period of mass um, uh, persecution perpetrated by Roman emperors. Okay, That's what that time of church history was characterized by. That period of church history was followed by a period starting with Constantine of uh, the church becoming integrated into the state and that the church was married with the state. And so you have this point where uh, state officials are making church decisions and like the, the, the secular government and the church became one entity. Okay, that actually happened. Um, following that, you have uh, coming, coming out of uh, that period in church history, you have the point in which um, you have essentially the Holy Roman Empire coming coming to bear with the popes and the the uh, the emperor of of Rome essentially taking on uh, the duties of the church. But then that was passed to the popes, right? The 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 popes were the the chief figurehead over all the church and made all the decisions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we can keep going through this, but essentially. If you look at that church history, like in that order, uh, a lot of scholars suggest that the content of the letters that we're reading in order matches up with each each period of church history really well. If the letters were in any other order, that wouldn't be the case. So, uh, like I said, controversial viewpoint, but there are a lot of scholars that believe that this is like the prophetic uh, prophetic level of application for these letters. And so, if that's the case. This letter to the church of Thyatira would be like the prophetic foreshadowing of the papal church, like the church ruled by the pope, or the medieval church, the church that the time period of the church that occurred in in the time of uh, the Dark Ages, essentially the Holy Roman Empire, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do your own research. <laughs> like I said, it's this is like a lot of speculation, but. I do have to say, from my personal opinion, it seems to fit. It really seems to fit. Um, it really seems to fit. So I think that's super interesting for us to just think about. So with that being said, um, with the letter to Thyatira potentially being relevant to the medieval church era, characterized by papal authority and the domination of the Catholic Church, uh, the Catholic Church in many, many, many ways very much uh, epitomizes what Jesus is saying in his concerns to the church of Letter of Thyatira, like in so many ways. And so, uh, I mean, the first point, idolatry. In Catholicism, you guys probably know this well, Mary, Jesus' mother, is often referred to and, and venerated as both the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of God. Interesting. Yeah, that idea of the Queen of Heaven started with Semiramis, was perpetrated out into these various cultures, and took on the names, you know, Asherah, Astaroth, uh, in uh, 
um, uh, what were the other ones? I forgot them already. Uh, Ishtar. What did you say? ISIS. ISIS, yeah, in Egypt, Ishtar. So that's, I mean, that that should really throw up some red flags for everybody. Um, the various patron saints in Catholicism um, that get prayed to are incredibly reminiscent of uh, the pagan gods that would have been over each of the trade guilds in Thyatira. I mean, you. I mean, I don't. I don't know all the Catholic patron saints because there's like a ton of them. But there's like there's a saint of the seafarers and there's a saint of like everything you could possibly think of. Yes, there is. There, there really is. I mean, there's a saint of the orphans. There's a saint. I mean, so many things. I, I couldn't even begin to like tell you all. Into animals. So. <laughs> That should throw up some more red flags, right? Uh, the fact that they have these semi-deities that actually get prayed to is not a good thing. Right. That is not a good thing. Um, for uh, Just so you guys know, I'm not trying to beef on the Catholic Church. There are I, I firmly 100% believe that there are Christians in the Catholic Church today. Lots of them probably. Uh, but I, I will say that many, many, many of the practices of the Catholic Church are not biblical. And Jesus would say exactly what he said to the Church of Thyatira, to, to the Vatican, to the Catholic Church, I believe. So, uh, here's something else interesting. Roman emperors took on the title, before the Catholic Church really became prominent, they took on the title of Pontifex Maximus. Okay? Some historians trace this title back as the title of the high priest of the Babylonian mysteries, believe it or not. Other, other historians trace it back as the title of the high priest of the ancient Roman pagan religion with, you know, pagan Roman mythology, all the gods and goddesses, etc. The high priest of that religion... Uh, which was going on several hundred years before Christ. Here's the interesting part. Upon disillusion of the Roman Empire, the title Pontifex Maximus was passed to the Pope and is still used by him today. Okay? This title, Pontifex Maximus, the high priest, potentially, of the Babylonian mysteries, or, you know, probably less serious, but still way serious, the title of the high priest of, like, the pagan Roman mythology, that religion prior to Christ, like, these these pagan religions that worship gods, you know, that are not Jesus, <laughs> are not Jesus, right, that this title is used by the Pope of the Catholic Church, which claims Christianity, okay? Here's something interesting. In December of 2012... Pope Benedict XVI adopted the at Pontifex as his Twitter handle, prompting users to pose questions with the Ask Pontifex hashtag. This has been maintained by his successor, Pope Francis, who now also uses it as his Twitter handle. The current Pope of the Catholic Church openly claims the title of the high priest of a pagan religion. <laughs> That's crazy to me. That's unbelievable. People just don't know what's going on. Uh, you guys can do your own research, but Catholic popes during the medieval and dark ages 
uh, were some of the most documented evil and corrupt people in all of history. I mean, just go research it. Like, they murdered thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the name of Catholicism in order to uh, subvert Protestant versions of Christianity, to subvert people reading the Bible for themselves, um, in order to gain land, money, power, uh, not good stuff, not good stuff. Just go research like any of the popes anywhere from like 900 through like 1600 <laughs> AD, like not good people. There's only like one or two of them that did anything good at all. Um, seriously, seriously. So uh, yeah, with, with that being said, uh, if you guys do your research into the Catholic Church and into what's going on with all of the, the Mary, Queen of Heaven, Mary, Mother of God, like praying to the different saints and stuff, essentially what happened was all of these pagan religions that were per pervasive throughout Europe when the Catholic Church came to power, they basically said, all right, well, none of these people are going to accept Christianity for what it is. Let's just create a system that we can merge their entire religion into ours and just change the names of everything. That's what happened. That's what happened. So for everybody that was worshiping uh, Astareth or Astarte, it would have been Astarte. It, for everybody in Europe that was worshiping Astarte or Olympia, or you know any of those female goddesses, they basically said, all right, well, they're just going to continue worshiping this queen of heaven. Let's just say, okay, you guys can still do that, but we're going to call her Mary because that's the biblical version of this. That's the actual mother of Jesus. And you can still call her mother of God. You can still call her queen of heaven, but worship her that way, and you can keep doing exactly what you're doing. Okay? The same thing with all the patron saints. Like, all of these people that, you know, I'm a seafarer. I'm going to pray to the god of seafaring. I'm going to pray to, it was probably like Poseidon or something, right? You know, I'm going to continue to pray to Poseidon to keep me safe and keep me out of the storms. Well, they just said, okay, you're going to continue praying to this guy. We're just going to call him St. Matthew or whatever it is. And you can pray to St. Matthew, the, the patron saint of seafarers. That's probably not what it is. Like, I don't know what the patron saint of seafarers is, but there definitely is one. There definitely is one. And so that's how they merged the pagan idolatry, the worship of false gods into the system of Catholicism and put it under the banner of Christianity. That's how it worked. And so once you get into that history of how all of that happened, you see that this letter to the church at Thyatira is so abundantly relevant to that era in church history. Um, so... <clears throat> Uh, one thing that I think may be a little bit misleading when it comes to talking about the eras of church history and how each of these church represents uh, an era followed by another, um, the Catholic Church is still around, right? They're still in existence. So that era of church history has not died out yet, right. okay? And so one of the implications potentially of what we talked about in those differences between the first three letters and the last four, the fact that the last four have explicit references, explicit references to Christ's second coming is this idea that all four of those churches, as represented prophetically, will be here at the time of Christ's second coming. Okay, The Catholic Church, the, 
the prospective idea is that the Catholic Church will still be around when Christ returns. And the churches that are represented by the following three letters will still be around at the time that Christ, Christ returns. That is prospectively why the promise to the overcomer in each of those four letters is included in the body of the letter. And why in the first three letters that the promise to the overcomer is uh, post-scripted in that the letters to the church of Pergamos, that represents the era of church history where the church was married to the state. We don't see that anywhere in the world right now, except for maybe one place, and that's England. That's the Anglican Church. Okay, But nowhere else in the world is the Christian church characterized by being married to the government. So that era of church history has died out. Right? It's no longer it's no longer happening. And so I hope that makes sense. You guys can go tease it out for yourself. I recommend like uh, reading your commentaries on the Blue Letter Bible if you're really interested in more of this stuff. Chuck Smith does a really good job. Um, there's uh, a, the series on the book of Revelation by Chuck Missler. You can listen to it on YouTube. He does a really good job. Um, there's, there's a bunch of other guys. Um, continue to do your research if you're interested in this stuff. And I am 100% willing to talk about more of this with you guys if you want because I find it unbelievably fascinating. But don't get caught up in like the dispensationalism of a lot of the scholars that say like, okay, the church at Thyatira represents the papal church that started in 900 AD and ended in, you know, 15 whatever AD. The Catholic church is still around. You can't say that. Yeah. And so it's misleading. Yeah. Okay. So, but take all of this with a grain of salt, right? <laughs> because we can't, we can't actually prove that this prophetic application of these letters is the case. However, there are a lot of scholars that believe it, and if you look into it, the more I look into it, the more I think it fits. The more I think it fits. So really interesting. With that being said, that teaching was a mouthful, but I think I'm done. So Ooh. thank you guys for sticking with us. I Any hope questions? I, yeah, I hope you're able to get in onto the part two after our little technical difficulties. Are there any questions? I would love to take questions. There are so many potential questions. Let's wait a couple minutes. I yeah, think. We'll, wait yeah. Minutes. we'll wait a few minutes and give you guys some time to ask. Any questions from people here? I'll just read this as we're waiting for questions. Okay. Um, Tristan uh -huh. posted uh, the Hail Mary prayer in Savonarola's <laughs> exposition reads Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Oh. Blessed among them. <laughs> I know. Baby. He knows the whole thing. Okay. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the and at the hour of our death. Amen. Yeah. So they recognize mm -hmm. Mother of God there. Mm -hmm. That was why I was posting it in there. Yeah, there was this uh, really interesting debate that was going on in one of those early church father councils about using the title Mother of God versus the term God-bearer, right? Because Mother of God has the connotation of, okay, she's if she she's is the God Mother of God, that makes her deity Yeah. Mm -hmm. versus the God-bearer, which she is the one that carried God in her womb. Right. right. There's a difference. There's a big difference. Yeah. 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 True. Yeah, there's one. There's one time. Uh, there's what Corinne was still at BCU. We like hung out on campus one time. You know, there's that big, like Catholic church there, 
Um, we toured it just for the heck of it. There was this guy who like showed us around. I, I think he went to the church. Yeah. Um, and so he showed. I mean, he showed us everything. Yeah. Almost. Almost. <laughs> like we went to the crypt and everything. Yeah. Okay. Then on the side of like the sanctuary, I don't think they call it the sanctuary. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. Thanks, Tristan. Um, <laughs> there's this. There's this like narrow door. Yeah. Like it was weird. It was like maybe two foot across. Um. And he's like, that's a secret room. We can't go in there. And just kept walking like it was nothing at all. Yeah. We looked at each other and we were like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I can tell you from personal experience, like Savannah and I went to Rome on our honeymoon and we toured the Vatican. We went into St. Peter's Basilica. We did it the was whole crazy. That was that, our least favorite part of the trip because it was. Weird. Yeah, I can. I mean, for, I can tell you from personal experience. I have never felt more of like a presence of evil or like an evil oppression, oppression. in my life as than walking through St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah. What is St. Peter's Basilica? It's That's the, the massive cathedral. That's in yeah, the Vatican. Yeah, it's like the the Catholic. It is the. It is. The <laughs> and you have Catholic all of the cathedral. patron saints circling around and even the shape even the shape of everything is very like significant in how it's constructed every tile like the way it's mapped out like an aerial view is like scary what it signifies and what it's built for and that's something research the you know the video series that you mentioned earlier talks about that and it blew my mind yeah and it's it's freaky stuff it's very crazy we like this was before we had even dove into researching any of that. But we walked away and we were like, that was crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did not like it. Like. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, exactly what Emma's talking about. Go watch go watch the Know Your Enemy series by The Fuel Project. I have it's to say, really good. It, it's not bad at all. Yeah. He does not cite his sources. He does not cite his and sources. I, yeah. I, I've got to say, like, like, he has a book. On the series where I believe he does cite his sources. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. He, he has, like, some really good stuff. He's really thorough. Yeah. But I always, like, especially with him, like, yeah. I'm really wary because he doesn't cite a thing. Yeah. Not in the videos. Yeah. Not in the videos. Yeah. So, like what Em was talking about, we talked about the Astro Poles. There is a big old Astro Pole right in the, in middle, the middle of the huge courtyard of, of the St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah. Um, Big one. And it was actually sun god Yeah, like sun god things. stuff everywhere. And what's what's interesting is like when we went there, there is an absolute abundance of statues of Mary and baby Jesus. Yeah. Oh right. So many. I mean you'll probably see that in every Catholic church everywhere. Every single one. A statue of Mary and Baby Jesus. So what you what we learned what you learned by doing some of this research is a lot of those statues were left over like from before Catholicism even took hold, before Christianity even took hold of Europe, they were statues of Semiramis and Tamuts that people were worshiping as Semiramis and Tamuts. And they just said, okay, you guys are going to worship this mother and child thing, but we can't call it Semiramis and Tamuts anymore because this is Christianity. And so that's Mary and baby Jesus. Continue worshiping. So you go into you go into Catholic cathedrals and there are statues of this pagan goddess and her her god that she her godson that she bore to moots like up in the church and people are worshiping it as Mary and baby Jesus when in fact it was originally carved or cast as 
uh, a statue of these pagan deities. Inception is <laughs> a real thing. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. Like, even when you look at art history and you look at, um, like, Christianity and Catholicism's, like, portraits of yeah. the Madonna and child and you have the sun rays coming from their heads. Yeah. yeah. If you look at Indian paintings and yeah. portraits and African painting and portraits, every other mother and son deity have the same symbolism coming mm -hmm. across their heads and a lot of similar symbolism just a different painting style yeah, yeah. um it's just really intriguing you can yeah. see the same things in cross-cultural when they're yeah. not talking to each other yep. so yeah. it's because they all came is from, yep. writing the prescription they all came from the same source that's why they yeah. all came from the same source materials those sure. motifs are carried throughout different cultures oh nina has a good question too yeah so what is the practical application for those of us who have not grown up catholic hmm the practical application is in is in Jesus' exhortation, uh, which excellent question. He says, "So as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Keep staying away from this mess. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially." Yeah. That's the practical application that he has. But for, sometimes to stay away from it, you have to know it. Yeah, you yes. have to know it. And so, the, and so exa that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And so the practical application is, okay, we've got to figure out what parts of our culture and what parts of our society have adopted this pagan stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right? What parts of our government? What parts of our government have adopted this pagan stuff? What parts of our our actual church? <laughs> what parts of our actual like denominational practices represent this stuff that's yeah. carried over from these pagan religions and yeah. avoid it at all costs? Um, because it doesn't make God happy. It really doesn't. Yeah, I mean I'll just Oh my gosh, I didn't want to go here, but I'm going to go here. So one of the things yes. I'm going to I'm going to leave you, I'm going to leave this up to you guys for your own for your own determination and your own convictions uh, to decide. But one of the things that we know for a fact was left over from the pagan Babylonian culture was the idea of Christmas trees. Yeah. There is a whole chapter in the Bible, the Book of Zechariah, that talks about. God hating the worship Jeremiah. of trimmed trees. Is Jeremiah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Jeremiah. Of yeah. trimmed trees. Chapter 10, I think. Yeah. yeah. God hates the practice of worshiping trimmed trees. Evergreens. Evergreens, mm -hmm. specifically. And so, like, you know, you can get into the history and the practice of it, but essentially what happened was at the festival of the sun god in the winter solstice, what would happen is... They would sacrifice infants by throwing them into the fire, and the following day they would erect trimmed trees as representative of the death and the birth of the sun god. That's the origin of Christmas trees. And so, like, I'm gonna leave that up to I'm gonna leave that up to you guys. Yeah. I'm gonna so I'll leave that up to you guys to determine what you want to do with Christmas trees, but I personally believe they do not make God happy just because we don't use them as I like items of worship now, but to know their origin, right? Like, their origin comes from something that God absolutely hated. Like he hated it. 
he considered it adultery and fornication. Yeah. So, another question. Another question. We have another question from Warren Colley. He says, hey, Matt, thanks for your teaching. I love church history. My question is, what convinces you that there are many Christians in the Catholic Church? I've heard many make this claim, but I've never understood it. Rome preaches a false gospel. The only way that they could be Christians in the Catholic Church is if they don't really believe Rome's doctrine thoughts. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I think that's that's more of a that's less of a Catholicism question and more of a salvation question. Yeah. What does the Bible say that it takes to be saved? Yeah. Right? So I mean, there's a plethora of scriptures, but confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you know, they're, I don't know, like, like I said, I, I suspect that there are a lot of Christians in the Catholic Church, but I don't know for sure. There might not be a single one. There might not be a single one. But I do believe that there are people in the Catholic Church who do what I just said in that verse. They profess Jesus as Lord with their mouth, and they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And so, like, that's up to God to determine that whether or not they're saved. I don't know the condition of their heart. But, you know, I can say that, uh, you know, I can say that, like, following after and worshiping these deities, these patron saints, and worshiping Mary as, as a goddess, like, I don't know if that precludes your salvation or not. <laughs> I really don't. Um, if, if you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believe that in Him alone rests your salvation, there are probably are right. Catholics that believe that. I can attest because I have family members that yeah. are like that and like that. So yeah, yeah. I mean, just um, from my own personal experience, like I, I did not grow up Catholic, but I grew up in a very incorrect doctrine yeah, right. with incorrect beliefs and, and systems of thinking, speaking, and acting. But I still was saved because the big rocks yeah. were in that foundation of like I met the minimum requirements yeah. everything sure. else was wonky yeah. and yet God still took care of me and yeah. took me out of that and so like I firmly believe that you can still be ignorant because a lot of stuff too with certain religions um, that are not Christianity have this like the hierarchy of knowledge mm-hmm. and so a lot of people just don't know because of ignorance because they have they don't get to read the Bible or they're just given this language that's so far beyond comprehension. And so out of ignorance, you might actually be in a safer, you know, set. But I think for people that are really high up in certain religions, it's really hard to say if you're in the throes of it, in the midst of it, that you're also a Christian. Yeah. Because that's when the conflicts start where you're like, is this actually true? Yeah. Yeah. So that's my own personal take that's me not speaking on your behalf. So here's an answer. Do I think the Pope is saved? No. <laughs> no, I don't. I no no person that would take the title of Pontifex Maximus actually knowing what it means, I don't think they can be a Christian. Right. There's no way. So I also heard recently back to the Christmas thing. Yeah. Um I also heard recently that uh there was uh, there were, like used to be like northern I don't know if they were necessarily Eskimo tribes or not. I don't know what part of the Northern Hemisphere it was. Um, but uh, they would take mushrooms um, and they would hang them on evergreens to dry them out uh, so that they could perform rituals as a tribe together where they all took the mushrooms and tripped together. Wild. Yeah. That's weird. Weird. 
Another question? Kate says, Ronnie says, <laughs> explain mistletoe and Easter practices, winky face, tongue out. Oh my gosh. Maybe another time. All I will say about that is the term Easter is a play on the name Ishtar. Yeah. Mm. We just (laughs) talked about it. We just talked about that. It's another Queen of Heaven thing. It's another Queen of Heaven thing. It's not celebrating the resurrection at all. And in fact, in fact, uh, the, I guess it was the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church or, no, no, no. The state church of Rome in the time after Constantine, when the church was the church was married with the state, the state church of Rome made certain that Easter, the celebration of Easter, which was a festival to celebrate Ishtar, the queen of heaven, the fertility goddess, whatever, that it did not fall on Passover on purpose because they did not want the two things to be associated together. Mm-hmm. So Easter is not Resurrection Day. Those are two completely different <laughs> things. And if you celebrate Easter, you're celebrating pagan fertility ritual sex practice festivals. <laughs> well, apparently Ronnie was kidding that he didn't want you to answer that question. Okay, well, but I'm sorry, but I went there and Here it is. I think he's secretly happy, probably, <laughs> that you went there a little bit. So, but you are more than happy to talk to people one on one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the winter solstice thing too. Well, yeah, that's Christmas. Yeah. So, I'll leave that up to you guys in your own research. Like that's what that's the whole point of this thing. Figure this stuff out on your own. Become convinced in your own mind. Come talk to me if you want. Come talk to like one of the leaders if you want. We'll tell you what we think about certain things. The Christmas thing is a whole lot more. not as well defined as the Easter thing. Easter, no way. I'm not even touching that. I'm not even touching that. Resurrection Day, yeah, you better. I mean, yeah, heck yeah, you better celebrate that. But Resurrection Day is awesome. Christ being resurrected from the dead. But Christmas, just know what what parts of Christmas you're celebrating and what what it's all about and the the origin of it. Maybe when. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have more? No, Nina just said that's why we got bunnies for Easter, fertility for days. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Accurate. Exactly. Oh. Wow. We can be done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so like. But yeah. hey, people uh, had but, questions. Oh, yeah, it was good. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. We love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this message on the Identity House Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed today's message, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to keep in touch with you. Be blessed today, family.